So I'm I'm curious um, how 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 long into the new year will it take you to start writing 2015? Three three months. Okay, I, I remember once writing it writing the wrong year in May. So I don't know if that counts. Maybe that was just you know some little you know brain synapse misfiring or something. I don't know what it was, but but it takes a while, right? It takes us a while. We know that there's going to be adjustments, um, maybe some big adjustments. Maybe if you're going back to school, you're you're taking a new class or something like that. Uh, there could be very big adjustments. Maybe there's new things going on at work. Maybe there's new relationships we're dealing with. But we know the new year has got new things um, ahead of us. But we're probably not there yet. Um, this is this this strange week between Christmas and New Year's. We sit here and maybe we maybe we go into work and kind of putter around, but we're not having meetings, we're not having the conference calls and so forth so much as we do during the regular part of the year. Um, maybe maybe you know we're we're supposed to be doing some some homework projects or something, but maybe we're not really paying too much attention to that stuff right now. This is a weird week because it's kind of kind of we, we can see things, we can see changes on the horizon. We we know that there's things coming at us in the new year, but we're not doing anything about them right now. We have this this period of time between a Christmas and the the future, and we're just kind of camped out here, and we're just kind of taking it easy day by day, and and you know I know there are people who are in special certain jobs, certain circumstances. They actually work a lot this time of year, um, but but um, for most of us, we have this kind of odd little week that's that's uh, a vacation, but but maybe we still do some work in it, but maybe we don't. And it's this time of adjusting, knowing that the future is going to be different, but not there yet. And really, that's kind of a um, uh, a metaphor, at least in my own mind. You know, your your mileage may vary, but really, that's the situation that the church is in. The church has been for the last two thousand years in this place where Christmas happened a while ago, and we know the future will be different. But here we are in the meantime. We're in this in-between time, and we know it's going to be different later, but um, we, we are after this, this event that somehow changed everything, but not everything. We're, we're in this odd place in history, and it's kind of like this week in the calendar. It's, it's this place where we know things are changing, but they haven't changed yet. Well, there's a different future in store for us. And we, we ask ourselves, well, what do we do now? What do we do? How do we, how do we make use of this time? Do we make use of this time? Or do we just kind of keep putting one foot in front of one, you know, another and, and just kind of work out the days, let them kind of pass as they, as they will? Um, is there anything we need to do? And what scripture tells us, what, what Easter, uh, Easter, what Christmas tells us, is that we really don't. That's what we heard at Christmas, is that God looked at us and said, you're never going to do this. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to pull this off by yourself. So I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to do it for you. You can't, you can't earn your salvation, so I'm going to give it to you as a Christmas gift. So, so there's nothing for us to do, but on the other hand, the future hasn't arrived yet. So what, what do we do in the meantime? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to occupy our time? Are we supposed to occupy our time? Uh, there's nothing that we have to do. And in fact, some people say, 
exactly. There is nothing I have to do. You, you probably met people. Maybe you know people who, who have said, you know what? I don't have to do anything. I'm going to, I'm going to wait till I'm on my deathbed and then I'm going to decide to be a Christian and, you know, I'll just kind of get greased into heaven at the last minute and, and, you know, it'll be perfect for me. And, and, you know, I get to, I get to have all my, you know, bad behaviors or whatever, but I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of uh, run out the clock the way I have been. I don't have to worry about anything. And, you know, that's true if you can make it all work out. Some people, death kind of sneaks up on. We don't all, we don't all, um, have, have it so, so easy. We can, we can plan it that way. But, but it's true. Scripturally, you know, theologically, yes, that's an option. Um, Dallas Willard calls people with that strategy, he calls them vampire Christians because they, they basically say to Jesus, um, I don't want your teachings. I don't want um, anything from you except just a little bit of blood. And, you know, you pay for my sins and, and then um, I'll, I'll just kind of do the rest myself. So he calls them vampire Christians, kind of a hard word. But, but that's what scripture says is if you want to, if that's what works for you, you can do that. So, so what do you do? You don't have to do anything. That's the whole point of Christmas. This thing that happened in the past is you don't have to do anything. But we're kind of waiting for this thing that is in the future, this, this new thing that is coming. What do you do? Well, this is not a new question, of course, because this church age, this in-between time, has gone on for 2,000 years. And we're going to hear an answer from probably the first generation that posed it because they were dealing with the problem that Jesus had said he'd be back soon. And they're thinking Tuesday. And, and you know, year after year goes by, and, you know, it used to be there was a lot of people who knew Jesus personally. There was a lot of people who knew the apostles, and they're getting thinner and thinner on the ground, some of them because of persecution, but some of them just because they died. And so it's like, well, you know, help us understand, what do we do? You know, Jesus said he'd be right back, but he's not back. What do we do in the meantime? What are we supposed to do? And that's the, that's the situation that our letter today was written into. What do we do in the meantime? So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, we're going to look at these four verses that really kind of encapsulate the last 4,000 years. So, uh, 2,000 years. So 500, 500 years per word, uh, per verse. Something like that. So, so, uh, Titus, um, probably not, uh, the most, uh, often read, um, scripture. Uh, you know, it's kind of in the tail end right before Philemon. Paul's letters are running out. But we haven't started the other ones. So it's not read that often, but it's a great letter. And this is probably the most succinct explanation of what God's big plan is that I can think of. So um, beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace is a gift. Grace is something you didn't earn. You know, when you get a birthday present, you didn't earn it. You just got a year older and people gave you a present, right? That's what grace is. They just did it because God gives us grace. So the grace of God has appeared. Now, when a grace appears, we know that He's talking. And in fact, He'll tell us in fourteen, in the, in a couple of verses, He'll tell us specifically when He says that He means Jesus has appeared. That the grace of God personified, incarnate. That that the grace of God has appeared. And um, this is probably the first generation that could kind of look at that whole lifespan of Jesus, the the thirty year span from his from his birth, all of his teaching, all of the things he did when he was walking the earth, uh, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. They can just kind of compress that now with some some hindsight. 
They can just say, the grace of God has appeared. Um, it's a Christmas story, but it's also an Easter and an Ascension story. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. So that means there's nobody that cannot benefit from the grace of God, that it's open to everybody, race, creed, color, age, sex, gender, whatever you want, the salvation has been brought to all. And then in verse 13, it says the the other side of the, the equation, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God. The blessed hope, a hope means something that you're expecting. A hope is, I am, uh, someone was telling me they're going to Hawaii. They have a hope of going to Hawaii. In 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 kind of common English, hope just means a vague idea. But in the Bible, when they say hope, they mean you've got the ticket. You just haven't done it yet. So the hope is a happy hope. It's a blessed hope. It's a it's um, like the 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 beatitudes. Blessed are the 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 those who mourn. Um, it is a happy hope. It's a happy expectation. We wait for it, and the manifestation, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. So we know that He's coming again. In the first coming of Jesus, He came in humility. He came in a barn, right? He came in a in a stable, in a manger. Uh, Jesus uh, was born to a poor family. He lived his life in kind of a corner of the empire. No one knew much about him until he was dead, um, and until and, and it was only because he rose from the dead that people heard about Jesus. But he's saying the future coming is the coming in glory. If you think about the Christmas story, it says the shepherds were out watching their their flocks. And the glory of the Lord shone around. The glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds, not the manger. You know, we get these pictures where there's little halos and, you know, all this stuff. The scriptures don't tell us that. They tell us the glory of God was out on a hill someplace. Jesus was born in humility. But he's coming in glory. He came in obscurity and no one knew he had come. But he will come again in glory and no one will miss that he has arrived. So that is the picture that the writer is painting here, that there is these the, the, this period of these bookends of history. There's the one at the beginning, Jesus' first coming, and the second coming, the glorious appearance, the appearance of glory, the manifestation of glory. What do you do in between? Well, that's that verse there, verse 12. Training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, Upright and godly. So let's unpack that. This is, I mean, this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? This is, this is the big picture. The last two thousand years. What are we doing for the last two thousand years? So let's take a moment and unpack it. It says, training us to renounce impiety. That's kind of uh, about as church lingo as you can get. Renounce means to turn your back on. To say you are not the boss of me. So we, there's all kinds of circumstances where we renounce all kinds of things. So he's saying we're going to, we, we are being trained to renounce impiety. What is impiety? Impiety is godlessness. It's, it's the idea that, that what you see is what you get, that there's nothing else. That when you look at a situation, you say, well, it is what it is. And if you're hoping for anything better, that's too bad. So he's saying, turn your back on godlessness. Turn your back on this, this kind of, uh, nuts and bolts materialism that says that that's all there is. He's saying that there is more. Worldly passions, I don't think I have to explain to people after Christmas uh, what worldly passions are. It's it's the things that we have been indulging ourselves in for the last couple of weeks. 
I saw somebody on Twitter yesterday said they ate a salad and that that canceled out everything they had eaten for the previous four days. <laughs> so, you know, that's worldly passions. It's the things that, that attract us that, that are not good or bad. It's not, it's not a question of are they morally right or wrong. It's just that they are the, the passions that govern us, the, the things we, we have difficulty saying no to. Uh, we are, we are governed by these passions, and the scripture says that we can turn our back. We can turn our back on these passions that make us take the extra cookie. It says, um, and in the present age, you know, Christianity is not about pie in the sky by and by. Christianity is about right now. It's about hope for today, or what is it, grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Hope, hope for tomorrow, yes, but, but grace for today. In the present age, to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. He's saying that this is something that we can have right now. We don't have to wait for it. He says, we will wait while we wait for the blessed hope, but we don't have to wait for this. This is something we can have now while we wait. The, the, he begins this passage saying, this is something we're trained into. It's something that, that we, we have to become adept at. And then in verse 14, he closes the, the, this section. He says, he it is, Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. So the, the, he gave himself for us. We know that. But what, why did he do it? To redeem, redeem us from iniquity. Iniquity is the, have you ever been in an argument where, where you know that this would be a great time to keep your mouth closed, but you can't resist saying that perfect cutting line? And then you deal with it for the next three days, right? Because, because that was the bridge too far. You know, you, you, that was the one that really drew blood. And, and it's that thing where you knew before you do it. You, you knew it. That perverse thing in us that, that makes us go that extra step that we wish we could draw back now, but we couldn't. That, that weird thing in us. That's what he's saying. Iniquity is that thing in us. You can almost see a capital letter. Iniquity. He redeemed us from it. He, he purchased us, uh, redeemed. Some of you remember the old trading stamps. You'd redeem a book of trading stamps. Um, he redeemed us. He bought us back from that capital I iniquity, that thing that makes us do that. And he wants to purify us. He's not just bought us back, but he wants to drain that poison out of us. He wants to, to, to remove that scar tissue, the, the, the things that iniquity has done to us while we were its subject. He wants to purify us from it. And this all takes place while we wait. This is not something for the future. This is not something that, that we have to wait until he returns. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but we can be part of it now. You know, the, the, the world is full of pain and heartache. You know, Edmund talked, you know, the other side of the, the world, there's planes that go missing. There's, there's fires that happen. There's people right in our community who are dying an unjust death. We can look at it and say, that makes no sense to me. I can't figure out why that would be. The world is full of pain and heartache and sorrow and injustice and misery. And in God's wisdom, 
Christ has not returned yet. You know, how many people over the last 2,000 years have hoped that God would come back now and deal with the problem? But in God's wisdom, the timing has not been right. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know why that would be. I don't know why later is better than right now. But what the scriptures tell us is that while we wait, we don't just have to endure. We don't just have to, to kind of face up to the reality the world is not yet, you know, this is not yet heaven. This is not the new heaven and the new earth. We're not living in the age to come. But the scriptures say the age to come can live in us. God is gracious. He gives us the ability to experience the new life now. Max Lucado says that God's dream is not to get us into heaven, but to get heaven into us. That's what the scriptures are telling us. We can be trained up in renouncing impiety and worldly passions. So the question for us, what's the application? The application is, you don't have to do anything. If you want to, you can just endure every day from now until the end of your life, just like everybody else, and hope that you time it right, and on your deathbed, say, okay, Jesus, you know, slide me right in. And you can do that. You can do that, but why would you? Why would you wait? When grace is available now, why would you wait? So, let me encourage you this week, the thing that's weighing on your heart, the, the burden that you're bearing, the place where you feel scar tissue from when impiety had you under its thumb, the place where you still feel poison, bring that to God. Say, God, train me to renounce this. Train me to renounce this worldly passion that is so ungovernable or seems so ungovernable. Help me to become the kind of person you want me to be. Help me to experience the new heaven and the earth right now, the new heaven and the new earth right now, and not have to wait for it. So that's my hope for each of us, is that we can take those things to God and then keep taking them because it's a process of training. You're not going to get it right the first time. It's going to take time. It's like any other any other kind of learning. It will take practice. But my hope for our church is that we can be the kind of place where people are welcome, even as they work this out. You know, oftentimes we look at people and we solve that problem, you know, with God's grace, you know, years ago, or maybe that's one that's just never bugged us. But we look at them and we say, well, you know, they've got that problem. They must not be a good Christian. And that's not what this is telling us. It's telling us everybody is scarred in some way by impiety. And God is healing us. And so my prayer is that the church can be a place where people are welcome as God works in them and brings them grace and peace. My prayer is that as we become a place where it doesn't matter so much where you are as where you're headed, that we will shine with the light of Christ and become part of his good news in the world. So the world can experience God before his glorious appearance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a good God, that while we are troubled by your timing and we're troubled by the fact that this world is still so broken and there is so much pain, that you have 
given us your grace. And during this between time, we can experience healing and recovery and become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.